0: There is no democracy in the Middle East. While women are technically now free to travel or open a bank account or obtain a job without the consent of a male guardian, they still can't get married without the consent of a male guardian. This is true in the UAE, this is true in Qatar, it's true in many Arab states. Human rights are not better off today. The protections of rights to speech, to assembly, to political participation, are not stronger today than they were several decades ago.
1: That's Sarah Lee Whitson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Sarah Lee Whitson on human rights and democracy in the Middle East. The Middle East is in turmoil. The hope and promise of the Arab Spring are now a distant memory. The toppling of the decrepit Mubarak regime in Egypt was greeted by many Egyptians with joy, but that elation didn't last long. Egypt is now run by General Sisi, who has changed his uniform for an Armani suit. If you criticize him and the regime in Cairo, you can easily land up in jail, or worse there's something like 60,000 political prisoners in Egypt. In terms of freedom of the press, Egypt ranks 168th out of 180 countries. That doesn't seem to bother Washington too much. Cairo is a major recipient of U.S. aid and is a lucrative market for Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, and Northrop Grumman weapons sales. Meanwhile, off the radar screen, is the ongoing Saudi United Arab Emirates bloodbath in Yemen. Joining us today to talk about democracy and human rights in the Middle East is Sarah Lee Whitson. She's the executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. Previously, she was executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division from 2004 to 2020. She has led dozens of investigative missions throughout the Middle East. She has published widely on human rights and foreign policy in the Middle East in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Affairs, and the Washington Post. I talked with her at the Middle East Studies Association annual conference in Denver in early December.
0: Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me really an honor. Well,
1: how would you assess the overall state of democracy and human rights in the Arab Middle East? I mean, the region encompasses 22 countries. At a glance, it seems autocracy is the rule rather than democracy.
0: Absolutely, autocracy is the rule everywhere in the Middle East. The only surviving democracy in Tunisia experienced a coup um, last year and there really is no true democracy anywhere in the Middle East and North Africa at this time. I think the most important thing to know about this is that this is by design, not by accident.
1: Explain that.
0: Well, 2011 marked a transformational period for the Middle East when we had six, by some counts, eight countries uh, erupting in demands for democracy and democratic rule. Tunisia was really the only one to come out of that as a real democracy. Of course, it hasn't lasted, uh, overturned uh, by both the uh, internal forces uh, in Tunisia but also external support for the coup. But everywhere else, uh, the efforts at establishing democratic states have either been decapitated at inception, like in Bahrain or quashed after a brief period of democracies such as in egypt where the revolution that led to the first and only democratic elections in the country um, lasted for nine months um, before the deep state in egypt uh, the military and the judiciary in particular uh, colluded with saudi arabia and the uae to lead a counter-revolution the reality is that there Forces of counter-democracy, of counter-revolution in the Middle East are unified and stronger and have global support in a way that democratic forces uh, in the Middle East are not unified. There's no transnational solidarity whatsoever and are weak with no global support.
1: In an article you wrote for Foreign Policy magazine, uh, you wrote, Human rights organizations have faced decades of dead ends. But one strategy in particular has been a consistent failure, demanding that the U.S. government prioritize human rights. That's because the demand itself is based on a false assumption. What is that false assumption?
0: I think the false assumption, uh, the false narrative, is that we have to choose either democracy and human rights for the people over there, thousands of miles away, or America's own interests and the interests of the American people over here. If that's the equation, human rights will always lose uh, because national interests will always win and in fact, it's our government's responsibility uh, to always prioritize the interests of the American people. So if the dichotomy, if the, the, the opposing forces are our interests versus their interests, of course our government is gonna choose our interests, but it's a false dichotomy.
1: In your article in the American Prospect, you write, I'm quoting, Biden's team was signaling a new direction in U.S. Gulf relations. But just as quickly, the administration yielded to reassure the Gulf that the real business would stay as usual. Last April, the White House approved $23 billion in weapons sales to the UAE, over a billion dollars in missile sales to the Saudis followed, along with a number of other major arms deals. You talk about the gravy train of America's largest, most lucrative weapons purchases in the world, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So
0: talk about those strange bedfellows. Um, I think what we're seeing uh, is the impact of uh, interests, of interference in decision makers in the US government, who even if they want to do the right thing, even if they recognize that Saudi Arabia uh, is a bad partner to the United States, that the UAE is a bad partner to the United States, because they have not supported us on oil prices, because they continue their war of aggression in Yemen, uh, causing a massive regional crisis, because they continue to try to interfere in our elections by announcing oil cuts right ahead of the midterms, to give just the latest example, uh, by uh, hiring uh, agents uh, to uh, sway candidates, as they were doing with the Uh, Trump when he was a candidate, uh, by spying on people in the United States, by harassing and threatening people in the United States. uh, They know that they need to recalibrate this relationship, but every incentive is for them to do the wrong thing Uh, And that is because the power of the defense lobby and the power of these foreign government lobbies just makes it too expensive for them to actually make decisions that are in the interests of American security and the interests of the American people. Every incentive is for the Biden administration to do the wrong thing, to say they're gonna recalibrate the relationship, but oops, to continue arms sales, to continue providing them with military protection, no matter how much Mohammed bin Salman humiliates our president uh, after his visit uh, uh, to Riyadh, no matter how many threats the Biden administration makes at the highest levels uh, that they're going to reevaluate the relationship with Saudi Arabia. In the end, the pressure of these interest groups uh, appears to outweigh uh, the pressures of defending American security. When you see the revolving door of US government officials going and working for foreign governments, 500 American military officials, senior military officials documented to have left U.S. government, U.S. Defense Department, U.S. Pentagon to go and work for Gulf states uh, at salaries that are not just two or three times more than what they were making, but 10 times what they were making. How can we trust American officials uh, to make impartial decisions in the interests of the American people? They have such a glaring conflict of interest. And that's at the heart of it. There is a conflict of interest that has infiltrated our government's decision making in the Middle East at the highest levels.
1: Well, I knew that the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was closely connected to Raytheon, but I didn't know about Anthony Blinken's uh, relationship with uh, Pine Island Capital, a firm that invests in defense.
0: Uh, You know, the the investments in defense technology, particularly defense surveillance technology, which I believe is what Pine Capital is uh, specialized in, is only one piece of it. Um, I think the, More troubling uh, piece of it is that uh, Secretary Blinken refused to disclose the client list, not only for Pine Island, but also for West Exec Advisors, his main strategic advisory firm, which by labeling the work it does as merely advisory, does not have to register as a foreign lobbyist. If uh, we were confident that there were no foreign governments, in particular no Gulf clients, uh, among his client list, I'm sure he would have disclosed it. I think it's extremely suspicious that he's failed to disclose that, uh, and uh, really just a shocking lack of transparency about where his interests uh, have been aligned and will continue to be aligned once he leaves office.
1: So Ike's military industrial complex is alive and well?
0: It's alive and well, but it's much, much worse today. First of all, in terms of the infiltration of the military industrial complex, within our own government. The extent to which the Pentagon, the defense uh, industry relies on uh, defense companies as contractors sitting inside the defense industry, uh, defense uh, uh, ministry, sitting inside the Pentagon deciding on weapons sales, depend, deciding on weapons integration. Uh, they are intertwined and interlocked so that one day someone is employed Uh, by the Department of Defense, and the next day, uh, they're employed by a defense company, but still sitting at their same desk in the Defense Department. It's crazy, and there are thousands and thousands of these people, but that's not even it. What's worse is that now foreign governments, there is a foreign government industrial complex that has infiltrated our government in a way that President Eisenhower probably could never have predicted. And so, what we're seeing now, the same sorts of infiltration, interference in elections, campaign corruption that the United States has been exercising in countries around the world for decades, it's now happening to us and to our own democracy.
1: The oil and gas rich Gulf state, Qatar, is much in the news because of the World Cup. There have been reports of abuses of uh, many of the overseas workers who, who come to the Gulf to Qatar to make a living. They're the ones who built the stadiums, hotels, and office towers. Human rights organizations have put the death toll among laborers in the thousands. It's a staggering figure. And correct me if I'm mistaken, but I also think there's a major US military base in Qatar.
0: There is a military base in Qatar, there is a military base in Bahrain, there are more military bases, American military bases in the Middle East than all the military bases of every other country in the world combined. Uh, There's no contest there. Uh, With respect to Qatar and migrant workers, um, with respect to migrant workers uh, in the Gulf, this is an issue that I've actually worked on since 2004. Uh, Human Rights Watch was the first to center the issue of the systematic exploitation and abuse of migrant workers throughout the Gulf. Uh, and to make this a global issue. Uh, And I think that there have been significant reforms undertaken in many of these Gulf states in response to the international scandals of basically uh, modern-day slavery. Um, I think these death figures are problematic, and I think we should all be very careful about citing them.
1: Apartheid is a highly charged word. Uh, Israel has been called an apartheid state by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, and Salem, which happens to be an Israeli human rights organization. Uh, Amnesty International Secretary General Agnes Kalamar said, our report reveals the true extent of Israel's apartheid regime. Whether they live in Gaza, East Jerusalem, and the rest of the West Bank, or Israel itself, Palestinians are treated as an inferior racial group and systematically deprived of their rights. We found, that is amnesty, we found that Israel's cruel policies of segregation, dispossession, and exclusion across all territories under its control clearly amount to apartheid. The international community has an obligation to act. Well, the Wall Street Journal quickly fired back, criticized amnesty's findings, saying, Above all, the report all but ignores that Israel is a democracy that accords more rights to Arabs and Palestinians than does any other state in the region. The Israeli Foreign Ministry called the report, I'm quoting, false, biased, and anti-Semitic. Talk about apartheid and whether it is being correctly applied in this instance to Israel.
0: I think uh, it's very clear based on the facts uh, and the law that Israel uh, is committing the crimes of apartheid and persecution uh, as defined by the apartheid uh, convention and as uh, identified as a crime under the, the Rome Statute. I'm very proud to have been involved in the report conducted by Human Rights Watch. Uh, on the finding of the crimes of apartheid and persecution uh, by the Israeli government and strongly support the conclusions uh, that Amnesty reached. I can tell you that these reports took as long as they did because these organizations had to triple cross their T's and triple dot their I's and engage in a widespread education campaign internally to the organizations, internally to the board, internally to their supporters to prepare them for um, this finding that for some people is just very difficult to accept. But the criteria of whether or not a crime is being committed is not whether we find it difficult to accept. You know, the notion that Israel is democracy uh, and therefore can't be guilty of the crime of apartheid is frankly just laughable. Uh, the notion that you can be a democracy for some of the people Uh, in your country while practicing exclusion, uh, discrimination, uh, apartheid uh, against others uh, living in your country is just uh, not something that can be taken seriously. And I think the real question we all need to grapple with now, and the question that I'm engaged with now, is what is a roadmap for Israel? How can Israel transition into a rights-respecting state, That doesn't practice the crimes of apartheid. That doesn't practice this unlawful, uh, prolonged occupation of millions of Palestinians causing them grave uh, injury and harm every single day. That's what's missing uh, in the international discussion today, and that's what I'm working on and my organization is working on.
1: Do you think Israel is being singled out for criticism? I mean, there are terrible things going on in India, China, Myanmar, and other countries.
0: I mean, what a silly argument. Every country is singled out for its abuses. When we singled out South Africa for the crimes of apartheid, it was singled out. When we singled out Sudan uh, for its crimes in Darfur, it was singled out. Uh, When we singled out Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi uh, and its war in Yemen, it was singled out. When we singled out the United States uh, for its war in Iraq, it was singled out. When we singled out China for its crimes in Xinjiang, it singled out. Every country, every government, every state is singled out for its crimes and its abuses because that is where responsibility lies. Uh, I think that as Americans, we have a special obligation to to take special notice, special responsibility for the crimes of Israel, however, because it is a government that is supported by the United States. Iran is not supported by the United States. China is not armed by the United States. The crimes of Israel are aided and abetted by the United States, so we have an extra moral responsibility to deal with it, to deal with the crimes of apartheid because we are contributing to them. And so it's on us as Americans to address them, first and foremost, before we wring our hands about Xinjiang, let's deal with the crimes that the United States is contributing to. When the unexpected
1: happens, trigger points, in December 2010, Mohamed Bouazizi, a Tunisian street vendor in the town of Sidi Bouzid, was harassed and humiliated by officials. In response, he set himself on fire and died. That sparked a nationwide revolt, toppling the Ben Ali dictatorship and subsequently was a catalyst for the Arab Spring. Now in September 2022, thousands of miles away from Tunisia in Iran, not an Arab country, incidentally, but for comparison purposes, gives the example of Gina Massa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman who was detained by the morality police and died in custody. Her death has ignited across Iran widespread demonstrations and an uprising. So you never know what's going to happen when, and the trigger points that launch movements
0: that's exactly right, and I, I actually learned, I think it was just last week, that before Boazizi triggered the uh, revolution uh, in Tunisia, there were five or ten other people who had set themselves on fire for the same reasons as he did in Tunisia. And none of them sparked what he sparked. So it really is something that you can't quite measure Mahsa is not the first woman who's been persecuted, harassed, detained, attacked uh, by the morality police in Iran, but somehow her death was really just the straw that broke the camel's back. Most important thing uh, about these uprisings is that we can't predict them. And thank God we can't predict them. Because if we could predict them, um, then so could the governments. Uh, and they would be at the forefront of squelching them, extinguishing them and ensuring they don't happen. In fact, what I worry about most now is that the opportunity for a spark uh, to flare uh, for democracy, for a revolution, for rights and change is dramatically limited and constrained uh, from when it was 2011, uh, uh, 12 years ago. Um, because the surveillance of these governments has so dramatically increased. The space for private citizen-citizen communication has so dramatically shrunk, not just in the Middle East, but everywhere in the world. Governments now see what happened uh, in 2011 across the Middle East, uh, and they wanna make sure it doesn't happen again. The powers of surveillance uh, are exponentially greater than they were before. That is the greatest challenge now of democracy activists around the world. And I pray for the people of Iran, and I pray for the people of China, who are showing remarkable bravery, knowing the consequences that await them uh, for resisting their autocratic regimes.
1: Journalists, a couple of ones. Jamal Khashoggi, founder of Dawn and Washington Post reporter, was murdered in 2018, and Shireen Abu Akleh, a Palestinian-American Al Jazeera reporter murdered in 2022. Uh, Talk about those two cases and why they're significant.
0: Well, um, I think uh, what's particularly significant about them is that they were blatant targeting and apparent assassinations of journalists who were deeply critical of oppressive regimes. What was also significant is that both Uh, had deep ties to the United States. And so, in a sense, this showed the extent to which an association with the United States, being an American citizen, being a resident of the United States, publishing in uh, perhaps uh, one of, if not the most important, newspaper of the United States, is not a shield, is not protection from being targeted and murdered by an abusive government, nor is it any assurance that the U.S. government has your back uh, if you are targeted uh, as an American citizen, if you are targeted as an American resident, we heard, we all heard uh, President Biden's promise that he would hold Saudi Arabia accountable, that he would make them the pariah that they are, uh, that he knew that Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the murder. And yet, what do we see in practice? What do we see in action? We see the Biden administration intervening in a lawsuit to hold. Mohammed bin Salman accountable, at least civilly, in a private civil lawsuit, uh, to grant Mohammed bin Salman immunity. The Biden administration didn't have to weigh in in that matter, it could have chosen to remain silent, but it chose to weigh in. And we saw the US government sitting after Shireen's murder and doing nothing and deferring to a whitewash Israeli investigation, of course, first lying that it wasn't even them, that it was Palestinian bullets, ultimately admitting as usual that yes, well, it was uh, Israeli bullets, but oops, it was an accident, taking that at face value. It was only because of tremendous pressure from organizations like ours, as well as some really strong support in Congress, that finally uh, the Biden administration announced that there would be an FBI investigation. Uh, And I pray they don't try to bury it, Certainly, they've tried to distance themselves from it, saying that the FBI investigation was an independent decision that they had nothing to do with. But uh, it was certainly not something that the Biden administration stepped up to doing voluntarily.
1: You're listening to Sarah Lee Whitson, Human Rights and Democracy in the Middle East. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program by calling us one 800 444 one nine seven seven. Again, that's one eight hundred triple four one nine seven seven. Or go online our website alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Nadir Hashimi, director of the Center for Middle East Studies at the University of Denver, points out what he calls quote U.S. double standards in the region embracing authoritarianism in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Jordan, while decrying authoritarianism in Iran, unquote. Maybe we should call it quadruple standards, double the double standards. So what do you make of of that, what can only be called hypocrisy?
0: Right. Uh, I mean, I think that people tend to shrug. When you talk about hypocrisy, you know, well, this is realpolitik, and, uh, you know, hypocrisy is bad, but it's not really harmful. It doesn't really hurt us. I think the war in Ukraine is showing us the costs of this hypocrisy, such that the U.S. is unable to pursue its interests, which today, now in Ukraine, are the international rules based order, international. Uh, law, prosecution for war crimes, accountability for, for Russian abuses, uh, the mechanisms of the International Criminal Court, the mechanisms of the UN. The United States has spent the, the, de- the past decade and currently undermining these institutions, undermining these laws such that they are very weak tools now uh, to, uh, to create support for the war against Russia to create accountability uh, for Putin's war crimes. So these hypocrisy and double standards are now undermining our own interests, not only in the Middle East, not only in the instability, chaos uh, that risks the area's volatility, um, which of course is very dangerous to American interests, but even as far away as Europe, where we are stymied in pursuing our interests of holding Russia accountable, of ending its war, because we have so badly damaged institutions of accountability in order to shield Israel, in order to shield Saudi Arabia, in order to shield Egypt.
1: Talk about uh, Arab women and democracy, uh, particularly issues like divorce, child custody, inheritance, property rights, and having any really significant political power in any of the 22 countries?
0: Well, um, I mean, two separate topics. Um, the discriminatory laws uh, that pervade the Middle East and North Africa, not just Muslim countries, but including uh, in Israel and impacting Jewish women, uh, as well through the so-called personal law systems, the religious law systems that discriminate against them in divorce, in child custody, in inheritance, uh, are you know, extremely harmful to these women in terms of their lives, in terms of their ability to leave a marriage safely and securely without losing their children, without losing their economic means of existence. And sadly, there has been virtually no serious reform in the laws of inheritance, some reform in child custody, but still a highly unequal system. And I think it is a missing revolution, a revolution we still need to see. Uh, I'm very glad that Saudi Arabia has lifted many aspects of its guardianship system. That basically meant that women never reached the powers of adulthood, but many of those still remain. So while women are technically now free to travel, or open a bank account, or obtain a job without the consent of a male guardian, they still can't get married without the consent of a male guardian, ever. This is true in the UAE, this is true in Qatar, Uh, it's true in many Arab states, and these really really need to change. In Tunisia, uh, the prior president did try to reform the inheritance laws to make it an option so that inheritance would be equal unless families wanted to opt in to a discriminatory inheritance scheme which gives women half the inheritance of their male siblings, male relatives. That has been overturned by the new dictatorship and so it's not on the table anymore. In terms of political participation, there is no democracy in the Middle East. Uh, there's certainly a Jewish democracy where I think women are ably represented uh, in uh, the Knesset. Uh, but for the, the rest of the region, you know, are women more excluded from puppet legislatures than men? Yes, but the legislatures are puppet legislatures. There is no legislature in Saudi Arabia. There is no legislature in UAE. So uh, I don't know that that is the most significant issue and I'm wary of cosmetic fixes um, that will say create a quota uh, to have as many women as men in a puppet legislature. The problem is it's a puppet. December
1: 10th is Human Rights Day. Eleanor Roosevelt and other women were influential in crafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights which was adopted by the UN in 1948.
0: You know, it is an incredible aspirational document and I think the principles, the the laws enshrined around the Declaration of Human Rights continues to be the most important organizing tool for social justice movements uh, around the world. But it is also time for us to critically examine the human rights movement Uh, and to assess and judge uh, its failures and its successes. Because if you look around the world, the scorecard is not pretty. Human rights are not better off today. The protections of rights to speech to assembly, to political participation, are not stronger today than they were several decades ago. And in fact, we see autocracies increasing. We see repression increasing. We see wars and devastation with massive violations of international humanitarian law rampant. We cannot say that we've been successful. I think that for human rights organizations, uh, particularly ones with Uh, the freedom and the power to operate uh, in the West, it is an important time uh, to reassess, um, but also restructure our mission, expand our toolbox, expand our areas of focus to, for example, take on illegal wars and not opt out of that discussion as a political one, uh, the way that Human Rights Watch uh, continues to do and Amnesty International has largely done. Uh, focusing only on violations of the laws of war, but not on uh, unlawful wars, not on proxy wars, uh, not on the multitudes of ways in which warfare is today conducted, um, like uh, a brutal countrywide economic sanctions. Um, we also have to expand uh, uh, our uh, targets of uh, uh, human rights abuses to examine political systems that empower abusers, like the lobbyists representing abusive governments and like laws that allow our government to become infiltrated by foreign government interests, by defense interests, and to go and work for them uh, when they come out. If we don't tackle these problems as part of the human rights movement, our human rights mission in the West will not succeed.
1: Why has the military in almost every Arab country been so powerful and influential? Is it somehow connected to the colonial past? Where has civil society been?
0: Well, I mean, there's, there's various aspects of that. I won't go into the colonial past. I don't think we need to reach that far to understand that the militaries in uh, uh, many of the abusive states are the recipients of billions of dollars of weaponry, uh, including surveillance weaponry. They are the ones that have the principal ties um, with Western governments. They are the biggest clients for Western governments, and also, I would say, China and Russia as well. So uh, there is an entire global system that ensures that they are the most powerful institutions uh, in their countries. And there is nominal to no civilian control of the militaries uh, in these countries. Just to be clear, there is no control of the military by the civilian government in Egypt. General Sisi's uh, constitutional amendments, completely abolished whatever vestiges of civilian control and civilian authority remained over the military, such that the military now has encroached on all of the civilian spaces that previously had power, like in the economic sphere, such that the Egyptian military controls large swaths uh, of, of the Egyptian economy. I think second, in terms of civil society, again, this is not by accident. There's nothing that is inherently weak or different about a civil society in the Middle East than in others. I mean, certainly there are educational differences, high illiteracy rates, low employment rates that don't allow for the development of a well-educated, articulate, well-informed civil society. But there are also laws in these countries that ensure that civil society remains in shambles. That does not allow civil society to assemble, to organize, to articulate demands of its government. There is no non-governmental association in Saudi Arabia that's not controlled by the government, Uh, similarly uh, in Egypt. Six Palestinian human rights organizations that operated with some measure of independence have now been labeled as terrorists by Israel and their doors shuttered. Uh, They were doing tremendously important work, uh, not really even just focused on Israel, but focused on developing agriculture in Palestinian territories, uh, focused on uh, documenting abuses of the Palestinian Authority. They have literally been physically shuttered uh, by Israel because these governments, these regimes, see civil society as a threat to them. They see the citizenry as a threat to them. They fear the people in their own countries because they have no legitimacy. Uh, They are not representative. And so their first war, their first security threat, are the people in their own countries and keeping them powerless, disenfranchised, and controlled. Netanyahu is back in power in Israel.
1: He's head of what Thomas Friedman of the New York Times calls, I'm quoting, the most far, far right coalition in Israel's history. Friedman laments, the Israel we knew is gone. Netanyahu is joined by extremists like Itamar Ben-Gavit, uh, Bezalel Smotrich, and Avi Moaz. What's in store for the Palestinians under this new regime in Tel Aviv?
0: What's in store under the authority of these far-right extremists is brutality, violence, uh, expulsion, home demolitions at a scale that we have not seen. And I think we're already seeing uh, the number of Palestinians killed uh, over the past several months that there is increasingly growing tension and violence uh, and lawlessness uh, by Israeli security forces, by Israeli police, which are increasingly targeting Israeli civil society activists uh, as well and subjecting them uh, uh, to violence. But you know what, Thomas Friedman, boo-hoo-hoo. You know, take some responsibility. The reason we have what we have in Israel today is because you've been an apologist for Israel for the past several decades. When many of us have been saying that these crimes of Israel have been ongoing, expansion of settlements, Theft of Palestinian land, murder of Palestinian civilians, thousands and thousands of bullets, kneecapping uh, youth in Gaza. You were the one who were covering it up. You were the one who was urging us to look away um, because you're biased. Uh, and so, really, Thomas, this is on you. Take some responsibility for what we're seeing in Israel today.
1: Well, if there is, is ever to be an independent, viable Palestinian state, you know, what would it look like? I mean, right now, It would be a collection of bantustans sliced and diced by Israeli Jewish colonies and roads. In a word, a non-viable state. So what needs to happen to resolve the issue? What do you recommend?
0: Well, that's exactly what my organization at DAWN is working on. We are working to develop a blueprint for how Israel can transition into a rights-respecting state, a normal state among states, Uh, that does not practice the crimes of apartheid, Uh, that is not uh, practicing military dictatorship and occupation over millions of Palestinians. I think that it's very clear, and everyone who pretends otherwise is pretending and has their head in the sand, that the two-state solution is dead, uh, and it's been dead for a while, that the Oslo process is dead, uh, and it's been dead for a while. Uh, And we need to shift our focus from this notion of a negotiated solution between two sides uh, to a focus on one abusive power, one abusive state that exercises sovereignty over millions and millions of people undemocratically. The responsibility, the onus is on Israel to end its apartheid and to create a real democracy that respects international law, that respects the human rights of all of the people under its jurisdiction. Only at that time can the polity under uh, Israeli sovereignty choose democratically about how they wanna organize that territory. Whether they want it to be one state or two states or three states or five provinces or eight regions, that's up to the people to collectively decide democratically, but that's what needs to happen first We need to move away from this notion of something that needs to be negotiated between two sides because that denigrates the individual rights uh, of the people living under occupation, living under apartheid. Uh, It holds them hostage to their unelected, unaccountable, useless leadership in the Palestinian Authority, which has no legitimacy to negotiate on their behalf. Um, So we really need to shift what needs to happen first and we need to focus on Israel's ending its apartheid rule so that the people in the region can decide democratically what they want. Well, do you see
1: the political class in the United States, the Democrats and the Republicans, pushing Israel in that direction?
0: Well, I think that certainly the narrative is shifting. Uh, I think we have seen an important shift among the opinions of American Jews, uh, among the opinions of Democrats, uh, such that we know uh, that the AIPAC uh, and right-wing Jewish Democrats are in a panic in their efforts to shore up their democratic base, uh, in their efforts to recognize that there are increasing numbers of uh, uh, congressmen uh, and senators who are no longer willing to accept uh, what's happening to Palestinians, in some cases, Palestinian American citizens like Sherina Barkley. Uh, we have an increasing recognition that the two-state solution is dead uh, among important think tanks. Uh, the reason we have seen President Biden and Secretary Blinken uh, use the words equal measures of rights and freedom, sometimes it's equal measures of security and prosperity when they want to downgrade uh, uh, the words they're using because there is a in- really recognition within even the Biden administration uh, that the time is for equality, um, that the old solutions that have been placeholders, convenient limbo land uh, for Israel for decades, they don't work anymore. I don't think they'll actually act until there's real eruption. But again, Israeli government is the one that's going to lead the greatest change. Their extremism, their violence, their terrorism, that will have the greatest impact in changing American minds. Why do you think it's
1: been so difficult, at least in the United States, to have critical discussions about Israeli policies without falling into the tropes of your anti-Semitic or a Jew hater?
0: Well, I mean, those are tropes that are still bandied about uh, every single day uh, against Jews and non-Jews alike, because there is an extreme partiality and bias among uh, American Jews Uh, who've built strong alliances with extreme religious communities, Christian religious communities, uh, evangelicals in the United States, that is supplemented by uh, a great deal of money uh, in support of Democratic and Republican candidates that, uh, as we discussed earlier, creates every incentive uh, for our elected officials to do the wrong thing. Uh, If they do the right thing, if they speak critically uh, on uh, uh, of Israel, there is such a steep political cost uh, to doing it that any politician, including Obama, uh, who started out uh, talking much more critically of Israel, to downgrade uh, that as a priority because they have other priorities they wanna achieve, like the Iran deal, um, like universal health care, The uh, uh, importance and influence uh, of uh, lobbying groups like AIPAC, uh, the very heavy weight Uh, that they use uh, financial power to intervene and influence uh, uh, local elections even uh, uh, is just very hard for individual candidates uh, to resist. Again, I think that's changing because the views of the American public are changing um, because nearly a majority, uh, now recognize that Israel is an apartheid state if you look at some polls, uh, that nearly a majority of American Jews no longer support Uh, the policies of Israel, but the leadership of these organizations continue to take a view for emotional uh, reasons, for reasons of history, for reasons of culture and upbringing that they will support an Israeli government, right or wrong. That's becoming an increasingly untenable selling point to their own American Jewish community. Do they feel comfortable with this apartheid state claiming to speak on behalf of the Jewish people? claiming to represent the Jewish people. I think that's a fundamental challenge that world Jewry and the state of Israel need to resolve. You know, Anti-Semitism is a vile phenomenon, and it's horrific that we see anti-Semites, who have said the most shocking things, sitting down and having dinner uh, with a former American president as if nothing. Uh, who irresponsibly says, oops, I didn't know who he was. Well, you certainly would have read Kanye West's remarks, and that should have been a stop sign enough. And so we need our own uh, uh, government officials uh, to take responsibility and condemn anti-Semitism in the strongest terms uh, and not dog whistle to anti-Semites when it serves their political purposes. You know, I I am deeply troubled by violent attacks against Jews. Um, My husband is Jewish, my children are half-Jewish. This is of direct personal interest to me, but I will never accept that we have to be silenced in criticizing uh, a a state that practices gross abuses, war crimes against Palestinians, uh, Muslim Palestinians, Christian Palestinians, because somehow Israel needs to be immune from criticism.
1: In terms of the climate emergency, the Middle East region is going to be hard hit with record and sustained heat waves. Fresh water is in short supply, drought, crop failures. Though COP 27 was held in Egypt, one does not see a lot of attention being paid to the dangers we all face, but particularly the Middle East faces. If 50 degrees centigrade does not motivate states to take immediate mitigating measures what will? By the way, next year's COP, COP28 will be in the UAE.
0: I mean, what can I say? It is a global failure. It's a global failure of states uh, who are interested in short-run benefits, in short-term interests, over longer-term, even more immediate catastrophic threats, uh, such as climate change. It's a disgrace that COP27 resulted nothing more than a promise to throw money uh, at governments who have faced disproportionate harm from Western or wealthy countries' development. That's not the solution. This is not a money solution that we can buy our way out of in terms of throwing uh, uh, compensation for climate disaster obviously we need to reduce uh, and ultimately eliminate uh, fossil fuel consumption. Um, But uh, as we see, uh, Saudi Arabia quashed efforts to uh, announce any new caps, announce any new commitments uh, on reducing exports, on reducing uh, extraction uh, of fossil fuels. And we're seeing United States and Western countries on their knees begging OPEC to pump more oil and to send them more oil. So I can't really hold uh, Middle East states responsible. Uh, for this alone, for these failures alone. Uh, It is a failure of industrialized nations, of G20 nations uh, just as much, but certainly the catastrophic consequences will be felt by the people of the Middle East, by the people of Africa, by the people of Latin America, Central America, and one hates to feel that they somehow must be calculating that those are acceptable costs.
1: The longest running and bloody conflict in the Arab Middle East, and perhaps least understood and underreported, is the war in Yemen, a small country on the Arabian Peninsula. Since 2014, it has been embroiled in a war between a faction armed and supported by Saudi Arabia and the Houthis. They are routinely, incidentally, called rebels who happen to be Shia and are supported by Iran. So the standard reporting, what little there is, is that it's a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Yemen's humanitarian crisis is among the worst in the world. It has long been the Arab world's poorest country. There's widespread hunger and disease. Many thousands of civilians have been killed. There was a halt in the fighting in October, but it has since started up again. What's going on in Yemen? and is there anything that we can do here to stop the bloodshed?
0: Just a couple of things. I think the framing of the war in Yemen as a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia was completely false from the get-go. This was a civil conflict, this was a conflict among Yemeni factions, a conflict for power and control of a post-revolutionary government that resulted from a failure of the national dialogue to address the demands and grievances, whether just or unjust, of the Houthi community. Saudi Arabia and UAE's intervention in Yemen in the face of a successful Houthi takeover of the government of Yemen internationalized the conflict and turned it into uh, the regional catastrophe that it is now, uh, the price for which has been paid by 23 million Yemenis. And uh, initially, there was no evidence to support the allegation that the Iranians were supporting the Houthis were anyway involved in that war. And report after report by the UN Security Council's commissions into the war in Yemen found little to no evidence of Iranians' support, Iranian arms... To uh, Yemen. Keep in mind, the country has been subject to a total air, sea, and land embargo from Saudi Arabia and the UAE to catastrophic effect, primary cause of starvation in the country for nearly eight years. So, the notion that Iran is just willy-nilly sending weapons into Yemen is just—it's just not true. And you can continue to read reports. There is some weapons leakage uh, from Iran. Iranian involvement has increased, but that's ex post facto. Uh, to uh, uh, Saudi Arabia and and, uh, uh, UAE's intervention in the country. Needless war that was primarily designed to give Mohammed bin Salman a feather in his cap uh, to secure Emirati support of southern uh, uh, Yemen and their full occupation of two islands in the south of Yemen where they've established a military base where Israelis are present in Socotra Island. This is about their interests in Yemen not about the interests of the Yemeni people. And so While the ceasefire has been laudable, and while of course everybody supports the ceasefire in Yemen, it's important to note that that ceasefire never ended the embargo, uh, the complete blockade uh, of the country that has caused such devastating harm uh, to the health and welfare uh, of the Yemeni people. And it's extremely troubling um, that fighting has resumed, but Yemen is in a state of extreme disarray. The number of factions uh, has increased proxy groups uh, reporting to foreign uh, agents um, like the Emiratis has increased. Uh, you know, we've been in a situation where, on the one hand, the UAE and Saudi Arabia were claiming uh, to be supporting the government of former President Hadi to restore him to power uh, because he was democratically elected, which is really funny that we, the Saudis and the Emiratis care about who's democratically elected, just not in their countries but then were actually holding Hadi hostage uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, shooting at his helicopter when he tried to land in the south of Yemen, uh, arming proxies who were fighting Hadi's own forces in the south. So it's a catastrophic problem that has caused Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Terrible reputational damage, unbelievable waste of money, but nothing in comparison to the devastation of human life uh, in Yemen. It's, It's an absolute tragedy.
1: And the Saudis and Emiratis are heavily armed by the U.S. and other uh, European states.
0: It's been a very, very lucrative war for Western arms manufacturers, which is shameful and disgusting. But I think it's also important to emphasize that the United States hasn't just been a weapons supplier, it has been a party to this war, and so also responsible for contributing to of war crimes uh, in Yemen for which it should be held responsible and owes reparations to the Yemeni people. And I am uh, very disappointed that the US Congress has not conducted one single investigation into the role of the United States in the Yemeni war, which of course started under the Obama administration um, and that Biden revived Uh, uh, in terms of active participation in the war by using US soldiers to protect and defend uh, uh, the UAE when it came under missile attack uh, from the Houthis. That means we are a party to the war. We are actively participating in the war, whether defensively or offensively, we are participating in the war.
1: Where are the openings in the Arab Middle East that gives you hope and encouragement?
0: These are dark days. Uh, I think that uh, hope comes from the people of the region. Hope comes from the brave, uh, relentless, tireless activists in the region who are miraculously continuing to demand their rights, to demand their freedoms, even from behind their prison cells. But also, very importantly, from a very now large and active diaspora Uh, political exiles from the region over the past 12 years, driven from the region, who are now actively engaged, actively voicing their demands for political freedom as part of the independent civil society from those regions. My organization uh, is very engaged in elevating the voices of uh, this political exile community because they are, uh, uh, for most intents and purposes, the only independent Arab civil society that can freely express its views and has had skin in the game of democracy and freedom, uh, has proven their credentials, years of struggling for freedom on the ground in their countries. And I think it's very important to keep them engaged because they will continue to be the future of the region.
1: Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You were just listening to Sarah Lee Whitson, on human rights and democracy in the Middle East. Sarah Lee Whitson is executive director of DAWN, Democracy for the Arab World Now. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Vijay Prashad, Noam Chomsky, Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, and Angela Davis. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Sarah Lee Whitson on Human Rights and Democracy in the Middle East, and for Edward Said's books, the Pen and the Sword, and Culture and Resistance, just give us a call, one 800 1977 That's 1-800-444-1977, or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Sergio Atala recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.